ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Three years ago or so, we went into lockdowns and millions of Australians started working from home. Many of us still are. But employers increasingly want workers back in the office. So what's happening? working from home is playing out in Australia, and not just Australia, actually. We'll get to that a bit later. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. You'll be very familiar with some of the key economic indicators. Inflation, the unemployment rate, average weekly earnings, the household savings ratio. They're really important, and they tell us a great deal. Barrett Hasseldine and his team at the credit bureau Illion are using something more granular. It points to the parts of the economy most at risk of seeing business failures. So we've had a look at uh, across all the industries of Australia to see which industries have the, the highest portion of businesses that are at high risk of failure in the coming year. And the one that comes out on top is food services. So restaurants, cafes, delis, etc. with about 14% of those businesses having a high likelihood of failure in the coming year. After that, we see construction at around about 11% of those businesses being high risk. Then retail services, for example, clothing and, and shoe shops, etc., at about 10% of them being at high risk. And then transport also at around about 10%. Uh, by way of benchmark, best risk industries have only about 35 to 4% of businesses that are uh, at high risk of failure. So these really are elevated three or fourfold um, higher risk. I suppose the retail one wasn't a surprise, but the others are little. With food services, what we've what we've really seen is there's been uh, a lot of increase on the cost side for restaurants and uh, and cafes and the like, which has obviously increased the cost for those businesses to run on top of rents, etc. But also consumers with the interest rate rises in inflation, they too are finding it harder to uh, to justify. I guess, more discretionary spend going for a, a Sunday breakfast at a cafe and the like. Mm. Uh, and so I guess both of those factors, uh, we believe, is what's putting quite a bit of pressure on, on food services businesses in particular. What we've been tracking is we have a, a proprietary database at Illion of, of trade credit relationships. So that's businesses paying money to other businesses, and we can see how late those repayments are being made. Um, and we've really seen that in food services – they in particular have an incredibly high rate of, of businesses paying each other late. How marked is this? Hit, hit me with some numbers on this, Barrett. To take the accommodation and food services, so pubs and, and hotels and, uh, and cafes and the like, what we can see is it's, it's four times more common for a business in that industry to be paying their suppliers materially late compared to, to um, businesses in, say, the financial and, and uh, insurance services. I guess when we, we focus on, in particular, the high-risk businesses, we can see that more than half of their outstanding trade, so that's money owing to other businesses, more than half of it is two or more months late, which is incredibly high compared to the average Australian business, which has only about 6% of their trade late. Uh, so we're definitely seeing a large and growing size of, uh, of, of money owing in those businesses, it doesn't look like it's slowing down yet. I suppose a high-risk business can be in any industry or, or, or sector, but there are you are basically seeing more of them in some industries than others. 
That's exactly right. And so that you're right. Every every industry has its its uh, its low risk businesses and, and high risk businesses. And when I say risk, I mean that the likelihood that they're going to go belly up in the next twelve months. But we're just seeing the portion of them being much much higher in say the uh, food services businesses and uh, and the like. Um, and what we've seen, especially over the last six to 18 months, we've seen the portion of those businesses that are paying their suppliers late has just grown uh, materially. I want to talk now now about debt collection, which is something else you've looked at. So I guess this is, I suppose, the logical progression for the worst cases where they've got beyond paying invoices late and now debt collectors are involved. What is the data telling you? For most industries, we haven't actually seen a noticeable change uh, recently in, in the volume of collections activity. Although for retail and food services sectors, we have seen about a 75% rise in collections activity. If you compare the, the volume of, of uh, businesses being collected on in the last three months versus the preceding nine months, um, so that 75% rise in, in retail food services is really significant. But where we've seen it even uh, an even stronger deterioration is in the construction uh, sector. So where the, the volume of collections happening now compared to, say, 12 months ago has grown uh, around about threefold. Um, so that's a really worrying sign because, as you said, debt collection um, really uh, happens when a business isn't just a little bit late on debts, they're significantly late on debts. And so that can be a, a strong leading indicator of business failure. When you're talking about late payments for invoices, it's clearly food services and retail, construction's in third place. But when we get to that next stage of debt collection, construction's the thing that stands out. Do do we have any idea of of that difference, why that is? I think one of the uh, possible contributors to that is there's been quite a lot of press this year into some public and uh, high exposure construction firms that have failed and uh, quite possibly there's there's a, a strong nervousness around the sustainability of some of the businesses in the construction sector so I wouldn't be surprised if creditors are feeling a bit nervous and maybe are taking I guess collection actions to be able to make sure they can recover the debts um, from those uh, construction firms. The silver lining is many of the construction firms have had challenges due to fixed price contracts and you know some of the builders are starting to wind them back now and I guess in terms of the retail and, and food services businesses with the inflation having come down a little and uh, with interest rates unlikely to materially go up again in the future um, hopefully that does start making uh, more families comfortable to be able to head out for that Sunday breakfast and support their local businesses. How predictive are these numbers? Are they a kind of early warning for those industries in particular over the next year? Uh, I think so. We regularly perform uh, analysis to see whether our, our predictions come true. And historically, they've been pretty accurate on aggregate. And so I'm, I'm quite confident that the, the view we're taking here is is aligned with the data we're seeing. There's always going to be different factors that play out in the economy, such as you know changes to construction contracts and changes to consumer sentiment, et cetera, which are hard to predict. But I do think we are going to see for, say, the six, next six to 12 months, possibly a, a further worsening of, of some of these businesses' performance. Hopefully then we can see things start to, I guess, normalise as, as inflation and interest rates 
find a, a stable point. One of the challenges we might have is if there are you know local businesses, cafes and, and restaurants and such that are starting to fail, then that can reduce employment opportunities in, in local areas, uh, which in turn can can uh, lead to more consumers thinking twice about going out to uh, to spend their money locally. So um, I guess hopefully we, we don't get to the point where there's those kind of systemic issues happening. How much is what you're seeing a canary in the coal mine for the economy more widely? There's quite a lot of industries that we're seeing are finding it tough. Uh, there are also industries that are doing just as well as they were uh, a couple of years back and even pre-COVID. So financial services, for example, we're seeing the likelihood of businesses in that sector failing. I have not changed over the last 18 months. So I think there's definitely pockets of stress in the business landscape. There are others that are, are going fine. If, if I were a miner digging to find a recession, uh, I guess my canary in the cage would be looking a bit wobbly. Uh, he's still on the perch, but it might not take much to knock him off. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Richard. Barrett Hasseldine is Head of Modelling at Illion. How much do you work from home? For me, it varies. Sometimes I'm in the office every day or four days out of five. But usually I'm at home two, sometimes three days a week. And that hasn't been an issue for RN. But it is for some employers. Reagan Petrie, who's at the Melbourne Institute, has been looking at this very thing. So hybrid is becoming more the norm, but employers are still twice as likely than workers to want their workers in the office full time. And while there's sort of disagreement on hybrid, that's not really controversial anymore, there's not much agreement on how much hybrid includes the office and how much hybrid (laughs) includes home. Workers want about 1.75 more days full time at home than their employer would permit. When you say 1.75, that's 1.75 a week. Correct. Well, you've been tracking this for a while. Has it been changing over time? Yeah, so we've been tracking this for a couple of years now, and certainly employers are becoming more flexible. Everyone can see that, so they're more willing to let their workers do hybrid work. But there's still a lot of negotiation going on. Workers are even more likely to work from home than their employer would permit two years ago. So there's more disagreement going up. So despite the fact that people are agreeing that hybrid is a reasonable work arrangement, it's still the case that workers are wanting more of this time at home than their employer will permit. Employers have ceded a little bit because a couple of years ago, that disagreement between workers and employers was larger at about 2.1 days per year, per week, excuse me. Um, and now it's at 1.75. But there's still a lot of disagreement out there about how work should be done. And that's not just here in Australia. Polita Clark has been writing about this for the London-based Financial Times. 2023 was really supposed to be the year when a lot of companies uh, who'd been allowing their employees to work from home quite a bit said, right, you go, now, I mean, we really want you back in the office for two, three, four days a week. Instead of just sitting back and accepting what actually before the pandemic would have been quite a benefit, workers were absolutely furious about this to the point that we saw, first of all, Disney um, launch a petition, employees launched a petition after being told to come back to the office for four days a week. And then at Amazon's Seattle headquarters, uh, crowds of people actually walked off the job for an hour over a range of requests, but including return to the office request. 
In uh, March, Starbucks employees um, also issued a petition telling their employees that they thought the request to spend at least three days in the office was poorly planned and prioritised corporate control over productivity. And then we saw in Google, their union reps went public complaining about uh, the implementation of a three-day return to the office request, saying that it meant that they didn't have meaningful agency regarding their work conditions, which is really quite something considering, um, I guess, what people were expecting. Everybody, including me, was expecting people would return to the office um, as requested. Here in Australia, attitudes on both sides seem to be hardening. Workers and employers only agree 37% of the time on the number of hours spent working from home, and that number hasn't changed for two years. This is where it's really getting interesting because what's going on right now is this different way that employers and workers are thinking work should happen. In your research, you use this really interesting word about employers and employees having different visions for the workplace now. What what does that mean? Yeah, so you hear a lot about, as you mentioned, that there are a lot of employers who are asking for their workers to be back in the office and workers are digging in their heels. So workers have shown over the past couple of years that they can be quite productive at home. There's some evidence that fully remote work might not be so productive, but there's not any evidence that suggests that hybrid work is less productive. Yet some employers are insisting on workers being in the office. And it's understandable, especially for employers who might be worried about worker productivity um, and they might slack at home. And employers who are used to having workers in the office, it might be really difficult to think about how they're going to manage this when they can't see their workers. But for this work from home to really transition, employers and workers need to start thinking outside the box and focus on how to evaluate work on outputs, not necessarily inputs. Not every job lends itself to that approach, but the ones that do tend to pay better. And that's what researchers thought would happen in countries too. Richer countries, more working from home. But the really high working from home levels don't necessarily happen in all rich or OECD countries. They're happening in a certain select group of those countries, and they're the ones that speak English, like Australia, the UK, the US, Canada, New Zealand, their average work from home levels are around 1.4 days on average. That compares to around 0.8 in Europe, 0.7 in Asian countries, 0.9 in Latin American countries. So it is absolutely fascinating to see that difference. And the researchers themselves are not 100% sure why this is happening. They must have theories, Belita. They think that because the tech and services sectors are so big in the US, for example, and in many other countries, that could explain why you see a predominance of working from home. Um, They also think that roomier homes in countries like the US and to some extent Canada might make it easier to, to work there rather than much smaller flats in Asia or Northern Europe. Um, They think that Possibly countries in Asia that managed to get on top of COVID quite quickly and didn't experience the same levels of working from home that um, people in other countries did, they might have therefore had less time to experiment and get comfortable with remote working. 
But the really interesting theory, I think, is that American companies in general are a lot better at performance evaluations and assessments and regularly carrying out assessments of workers' performance. Mm. And so they're much more relaxed about the idea of people working at home. And what Nicholas Bloom thinks is that because these management practices in the US tend to be adopted faster in other English-speaking countries and then spread elsewhere, that's one of the reasons why he thinks working from home is probably here to stay. It certainly looks like that in Australia. And that's despite more employers wanting their workers back in the office more often. Since last month, federal public servants have had the right to ask to work from home with no caps on how many days a week. The National Australia Banks agreed to legal protections for its employees to work from home. And when the Commonwealth Bank told staff it wanted them in the office, they went to the Fair Work Commission. All of these have something in common. It's the white-collar union representation amongst some employers, as we've seen in the Australian public service uh, and also at some financial institutions, some big banks in Australia. Um, we've seen there where unions have been able to do incredibly well for their members in getting and securing rights or um, it's very close to rights to work from home or request working from home with a presumption that it's more likely that it will be granted than not. So that's actually quite something to see, I have to say. And this degree of Australian exceptionalism is underlined by Reagan Petrie, who works for the Melbourne Institute, but also has a role in the US, which is where she lives. So Australia is unique in the sense that even prior to the pandemic, they're very accommodating for part-time workers, casual workers. There had been a lot of flexibility already baked into the system. So I'm perhaps not so surprised that it's embraced a little more broadly in Australia. In the, in the US, there is similar negotiation going on between employers and workers in terms of where the work is getting done. They're surprisingly similar when you look at some of the international studies on working from home. Um, U.S. workers may be demanding a little more work from home relative to Australia, but very, very similar. And some people attribute that to the fact that there's been a lot of technology and technology firms are embracing it a little bit more. But you also have to remember that in Australia, there's also been a lot of this flexibility to begin with. And there are already a lot of people who are working part time and there's still this <laughs> there's still this sort of disagreement between employers and workers, but but very similar types of tension between yeah. employers and workers. If the workers' position is hardening, as it looks to be, well, that's because it can. Labor markets are interesting, aren't they? Because it really depends a lot on supply and demand. And at this stage, with workers in the driver's seat, because unemployment's pretty low right now, they're in a position that they should be able to ask for these kind of things. Or if anything else, well, things are changing a little bit in the US right now, where there are a lot of employers who are demanding workers come back in the market and the labor market's getting a little tighter. And there's some estimates that say that workers are willing to, to take equivalent of like about an 8% pay cut to be willing to work at home. So I think it, it depends a lot on where things are in terms of demand and supply. But right now, workers seem to be more in the driver's seat. 
Obviously, that can change. But what won't change, according to Nicholas Bloom at Stanford, is the inexorable spread of working from home. Polita Clark. One of the reasons that he is confident is that he thinks that there are a lot of the new companies starting up today are all remote. And so they're going to be the companies of the future, assuming they last the distance. So he thinks that that's one reason. Um, Another reason he thinks that it's here to stay is that in countries with low fertility rates, where they're really trying to figure out ways of boosting those rates, they have woken up to the fact really that working from home is extremely popular amongst parents in their 30s with young children for obvious reasons. It just makes the whole parenting of young children much more simple and straightforward. So they're basically potentially, he thinks, going to allow a lot more of it. So that, I think, makes it pretty persuasive that this is not something that we're going to see go away. We may see remote working levels dip, but Nicholas Bloom thinks that eventually they'll come back up and so the rate will look something like a Nike swoosh. So down and then back up, whooshka. Exactly. Belita Clark's an associate editor and columnist at the Financial Times. You also heard from Reagan Petrie, professorial fellow at the Melbourne Institute. Most of us have become used to buying things online, books, clothes, appliances, you name it. And hey, if it doesn't fit or there's something wrong with it, we send it back. Easy peasy. And it mostly doesn't cost you anything. But Simone Pankofa from Michigan State University says it does end up costing a lot In 2022, it is actually estimated that it costs about $816 billion for retailers to process and, you know, incur the returns. And that number is actually almost as much as the U.S. in general spends on public schools, or it even doubled the cost of returns from 2020. Oftentimes, this process actually takes about two to three times longer than when initially a retailer is fulfilling a consumer's order. So it is estimated that a product, for example, that's valued at 50 bucks could cost the retailer up to like $33 when it actually gets returned. So that's about 66% of the value of the product. All in that initial processing unpacking, inspecting, repacking, sending where it has to go next. Some of these returns are going to be because the customers changed their mind or or, the, or it doesn't fit. They've got the wrong size. But sometimes people are going to send something back because there's something wrong with it. Now, with these defective goods, can anything be done with them to sort of save some money? So often what happens when you have, for example, a laptop that had a quality issue, got returned, you can send it back to the manufacturer and they can fix it. And then that refurbished laptop would re-enter the consumer market and is often then sold actually at a lower cost. So it's really it's really a financial decision that the retailer has to make whether it is feasible to refurbish products or whether the products rather mm. go to win. So, Simone, what happens if it's not if it's not feasible from the retailer's point of view? Do they just throw it away, or because that would be a huge, huge waste of money? It seems to me. Oftentimes, a lot of return products simply end up in landfills. So, 
In 2019, for example, returned products generated about 5 billion pounds of waste that simply ended up in landfills around the world. And actually, this number almost doubled to 9.5 billion pounds in 2022. And I mean, of course, there are other options. I just recently talked to the CEO of a new startup that buys return goods and then resells them through a storefront. And oftentimes, nonprofit organizations might also be interested in purchasing or receiving donated return goods, which then they can, of course, use to help the people in need. We've been talking about this across the system, but from the consumer's point of view, it's mostly free. We don't have to pay any of these costs, or we don't directly, and we'll come back to that. Has it always been the case that retailers have kind of had to had to wear these costs? In the past, for example, customers or consumers who wanted to return items, they were actually expected to pay for the shipping mm. cost or yeah. to pay a restocking fee. And then, of course, Amazon, being that you know big leader in the field, began offering free returns and provide easy drop-off locations in a very convenient way and for free. How sustainable is that for everybody else, uh, being able to to swallow the, the costs of free returns? Because they're not free. There's huge costs involved. For a lot of retailers, offering free returns is simply not feasible from a financial perspective. So actually, the number of retailers that are now requiring consumers to pay for return shipping increased in 2022 from about 33% to 41%. So there's definitely a change that we see here in the retail landscape in the U.S. from this completely free returns Mm. to, hey, let the consumer pay for shipping because otherwise it's not feasible for us from a financial perspective. Of course, from the from the retailer's point of view, it's it's worth avoiding as many returns as possible. Are they are they able to do things to kind of reduce returns? Yeah, there are a few things that retailers are doing. So oftentimes what we see is that retailers actually have shortened their return window, let's say 90 days, and now they might have shortened it to 60 or 30 days. They also, of course, stop to offer free returns or limited the number of products that you know consumers can return other options that i've seen by engaging with industry professionals is that they try to intervene as early as possible to actually eliminate or mitigate product returns Mm. so there are startups out there that use predictive analytics so they use consumer data they know what's the cause of the return what's the product and so on and they help retailers to identify products with an unusual high return rate, or they can identify consumers that are abusing the return policy, for example. So retailers can intervene and block consumers that have an unusual high return rate from returning products. Or if there is an unusually high return rate for product, they can start looking into, okay, what is the reason? Is it because it's not clearly communicated on the website what the color is and that is off? So that would be an easy fix. Or is it that a quality issue, then the retailer can go and dig deeper and see whether there's issues with their suppliers or manufacturers of that product. Returns are not free. They feel like they're free, but they're not. They cost in terms of time and effort and waste, carbon, 
landfill lost sales to retailers of 816 billion US dollars. Ultimately, we have to pay for this, don't we? It's going to be re- reflected in the prices that we pay. Yeah, so we we are going to pay for it. I think consumers will already feel it by having to pay for returns. But then also we will feel it in terms of making a negative impact on our environment with our behavior, right? Of, you know, purchasing the the shoes in two different sizes, two different colors with the intention to, you know, returning one of them, for example. So it it really is in our hands and changing also our behavior when it comes to product returns. Simone Pankofa is in the Supply Chain Management Department at Michigan State. And that's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 